from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. On this Studio 360 podcast extra, we are presenting a special series of stories about science and creativity. We're looking into the particular question of whether animals, animals other than us, have culture. Here is part one of a three-part series. That, in case you didn't know, is a humpback whale singing. We've known for a long time that some animals apparently do things for purely aesthetic reasons. Bower birds decorate their nests with colorful bits of string and foil. Octopuses are known to carefully arrange interesting shiny objects outside their dens. No, as far as we know, octopuses do not make gardens. Scientists are looking at all these behaviors to ask seriously whether animals make aesthetic judgments. What shapes their preferences and how? Whether animals have what we could call culture. We've certainly been forcing our tastes on them for a long time. There is a whole music industry catering to pet owners. If you've got one of those dogs that cries when you leave for work, there are CDs to calm them down, usually classical music. But did Rusty tell you he liked Chopin? Certainly classical music isn't calming for all people. The species you are determines what's audible to you. But beyond that, we, we really all have different tastes and preferences. And um, I think other animals really have more diverse tastes and preferences than we normally give them credit for. That's Laurel Brightman. She's been putting on concerts for animals. No humans allowed. Britt Ray has her story. Laurel Brightman got interested in what music animals like because she was writing about how animals go mad. She researches their depressions and anxieties and says that captive animals generally suffer the most. And it's because captive animals have so much time on their hands. And if they their minds aren't stimulated and challenged, they can end up with all kinds of disturbing behaviors. And, you know, boredom is a pretty extreme stressor. Laurel is a historian of science, but she's not just a researcher. She wants to enrich captive animals' lives by giving them something to do to occupy their time. About four years ago, she got an idea. I read an article that was published in the late 19th century called Music for Animals. And it was an article about all of the Victorian music concerts that had been performed for other animals. Things like uh, concerts for elephants in Paris or milkmaids um, singing to the cows while they were milking them. And I got interested in the idea of what would happen if I decided to do this now. And now, over 100 years later, Laurel throws concerts for all kinds of animals. For example, I had the band Grass Widow come to Boston and play for the gorillas at Franklin Park Zoo. Jason Holt of the UK band Spectrum came and droned for sea lions on the California coast. Goodshield Aguilar is a native musician, played for the buffalo in Golden Gate Park. I don't ever open these up to human audiences. The whole point is that it's a concert for other creatures. And it's on her own dime. There's no research funding. Until we teach the animals capitalism, I don't expect to be collecting any money at the door. Uh, So I can't pay anyone. I haven't been paid. And everyone who's helped me with these has has donated their time. Do you wish you were 
The most recent concert was by Black Prairie, a bluegrass-inspired group from Portland, Oregon. They played for 52 wolves at a sanctuary called Wolf Haven in Washington State. Wolves arrive at Wolfhaven for all kinds of reasons. Um, many were rescued from uh, a roadside wolf attraction in Alaska. They were never let off the chain. So until they finally shut down this place, many of these wolves, they'd never run. They'd never touched noses with another canid. Um, really, they, they just had the worst kind of life. On the day of the wolf concert, the band started playing after the heat of the day had passed. The wolves were just waking up after napping in the sun. The Mexican wolves are standing at the very edge of their enclosure, at the spot that's closest to us, uh, making unbroken eye contact. And the wolves, they're just clearly, clearly interested. They have a huge enclosure, and they could be anywhere. And uh, they're right at the closest place Laurel's concert is not exactly a scientific study, but other scientists are interested in the questions it raises, like Mark Beckoff, professor emeritus from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He spent his career looking at wolf, coyote, and dog behavior. What's so mysterious and so intriguing when you consider the question of music is there no doubt hearing overtones and sounds that we do not hear and we can't even begin to appreciate, you know, perhaps the complexity of what they hear in the sounds produced by musical instruments. One in particular is maybe three inches away from the fence, ears pricked, almost like a dog smile. How can we interpret an animal's psychological state with science? Well, the use of MRIs on dogs is becoming a very, very good technique. But, you know, just purely observational. Are they nervous? Are they scratching themselves? Are they, you know, sort of looking around as if they're really weary of what's happening? I don't know. They sort of remind me of people at an outdoor summer concert. They're kind of like paws crossed next to each other and ears pricked and paying attention but relaxed versus they kind of cock their head from side to side they look really uncertain they approach they withdraw they approach they withdraw um, their gait may be really um, choppy there's no control on this experiment but biologists have looked at animal appreciation of music in more controlled conditions Charles Snowden of the University of Wisconsin-Madison works with a composer named David Tai. They've designed species-specific music that includes the sonic frequencies that the animals communicate with in nature. They've done it with house cats and these little monkeys called cotton-top tamarins. I think the music that we prefer is not necessarily the music that our pets prefer, and we ought to be really thoughtful and careful about that. In fact, if you listen to the tamarind music, it's pretty god-awful in my, to my listening. It sounds like a lot of scratches on a blackboard somewhere. But they've seen that it effectively relaxes the tamarinds. For cats, we used music that has a tempo of purring or a tempo of, of, of an infant suckling on its mother. And they say that the cats prefer their kitty music to regular human music. We could show that the animals preferred to go to the speakers with cat music than preferred to go to the speakers with human music. 
Is noticing a difference in behavior enough to say whether or not there is preference? Because preference seems to indicate some sort of likability. Yeah, that's a really good point because animals could just uh, not like music at all. And there's a study that was done at Harvard University several years ago where they took the same monkeys that we studied and gave them a choice between Mozart and heavy metal. And they found that when given the choice between Mozart and heavy metal, the monkeys preferred Mozart. But then they decided to do a further test and they presented Mozart versus silence and found that the monkeys preferred silence instead. So we have to give them a a choice of that sort. Although Laurel didn't give the wolves that choice. The person who knows them best thinks that they were definitely into it. Diane Gallegos is the director of Wolfhaven. I was very surprised. I actually thought that once you came in with the instruments that we were going to have to ask you to leave because I figured that they would be nervous and they'd run to the back. And instead with the music, we saw the first group come up to the fence and listen. And then we saw the others in the other enclosures coming up to listen. Really, the only indicator that I have is that they didn't leave. And that's really powerful. And actually, that's really how a lot of musicians judge the success of their show. Um, Did people not leave? Did they not talk? Did they stay and seem to enjoy themselves? At the end of the show, the band wanted to banter with the audience a little. The staff of Wolfhaven tried to teach us how how to, they call it, initiate a howl. And they said, you lean your head back and you open your mouth and then you howl. And they said they had no idea if the wolves would howl back, but we should try it. It sounds kind of silly. But then listen to what happened. And, and now all the wolves are howling in response. Who knows what those howls meant? But it's tempting to think it's the wolves' way of calling for an encore. Because it's not like they have lighters to hold up. Oh my god. For Studio 360, I'm Britt Ray. Is that okay? The show will resume very, very shortly. But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Studio360Show. And now, back to the podcast. This is Studio360, and in today's special episode of our Science and Creativity series, we are asking whether animals have culture. And for some insight on that question, I wanted to talk to Richard Prum. If there's such a thing as a celebrity ornithologist, he's it. You know that newish theory that birds descended from dinosaurs? Prum supplied the key piece of evidence. His interest in feathers then led him to study the physics of color, research that is now being applied to develop a new kind of paint. And Prum's study of birds has extended his area of interest into aesthetics. He's reignited a debate that has been simmering since Darwin's day. Rick Prum, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So 
You started thinking about aesthetics when you were studying birds called mannequins in South America. What is special about mannequins? Well, mannequins are uh, tiny little uh, chickadee-sized birds that uh, live in South America. Unlike a lot of birds, unlike most birds, mannequins uh, are raised only by their mothers. So the female does builds the nest and raises the young uh, all by herself. And as a result, she can choose any male she likes to mate with. And that gives rise to what we call sexual selection, uh, mate choice. And she ends up evolving to prefer males that do elaborate dances. And this is like an extreme version of what a lot of animals do. There's a lot of mating display and ritual and other birds sing to get their mates. This is extreme because they don't have anything to do but pick a mate. Right. And what makes it also extreme is that the females tend to agree on who they prefer. So the vast majority of the offspring are sired by but just a few males. Really? And so what is the dance that these males, most of whom won't get picked, do is what, more or less? Well, the, uh, each species has evolved a complex repertoire of vocal uh, songs, uh, wing songs or mechanical songs, and, uh, and movements, dance So it's a whole vaudeville act. Really. It's, it's opera. It's got a lot of different elements. And what would my Biology 101 professor have said was the purpose of that mannequin mating well, ritual. The vast majority of evolutionary biologists believe that females prefer the dances they do because those dances indicate the quality of the male. That is, that he's got good genes or that he's a good dad. And you're saying, uh-uh, that isn't it. My uh, hypothesis is that the, uh, for the most part, ornament in mannequins and, and in nature evolves uh, merely because it's popular or uh, merely beautiful. Really? So, so for birds and obviously other kinds of animals and species, it is just art for art's sake. It's, oh, that's cool. Yeah, let's sleep it, together. It's a lot like high fashion. I think yeah. that uh, uh, although it's genetic and doesn't quite move with the, with the, the seasons, uh, if the skirt is above the knee or below the knee or has shoulder or the jacket has shoulder pads or not, doesn't really matter. It, do, it doesn't even have implications for the actual function of the clothing. Right. What matters is that it's hot. And genetically speaking, similar kind of processes could be very common in nature. So, I mean, not to anthropomorphize birds too much, but is it not unlike dancing we do when a girl sees a guy dancing well at a prom and thinks, yeah, I'll go out with him? I think that uh, we, for the most part, don't anthropomorphize birds enough. That is, uh, we're afraid of talking about right. about their subjective experiences, what's going on inside their heads, right. because we can't measure it. But in fact, what they experience is desire. What they experience is uh, the subjective experience of beauty, of being attracted to something. And, and actually, that was Darwin's original idea in proposing the theory of mate choice, is that... Uh, it's about the aesthetic faculty, the ability of individuals to actually observe and have opinions about the beauty of other, other individuals. And it's beyond that we talked mostly about this dance that mannequins do, but in other species, it's, it's about color, it's about song, it's about all these aesthetic expressions. True, from uh, whale song uh, to uh, the beauty of bird plumages. All these are examples of ornament, and I believe we should really look at uh, as a result of an aesthetic evolutionary process. Now, as I, as I said in the introduction, you have gone a step beyond, some of your peers I'm sure would say, a bridge too far. You're, you're suggesting that animal aesthetic preferences amount to art in the same way that the art that we create or the advertising that we create or the entertainment that we create is an aesthetic 
show? That all started when I started looking at the aesthetic and aesthetic concepts in biology. And once I started to embrace them, I thought, hey, I ought to go to the rest of humanities. They, they, they have thousands of years of literature talking about what beauty is and how it changes. And we're animals. Right. <laughs> so I then uh, started reading in, in aesthetic philosophy, and I found that, at least contemporarily, it's in pretty sorry state. There isn't a lot of things people agree on. So more recently, I've been starting to do work in aesthetic philosophy, uh, and the goal is to create intellectual tools or frameworks that allow us to understand aesthetic evolution in animals uh, in ways that are common with uh, the way aesthetic change occurs in communities of artists and and cultures uh, of humans. You're not saying that there can't be distinctions made, and we may prefer and be excited by human art in a way that we aren't by mannequin dances. Right. Well, I I think that uh, what is important is that every single kind of art evolves or exists within a community of producers and consumers or evaluators. Right. And the normative judgments in that in that art world, if you will, that population, arise as a result of the dynamics of that group. So whether it's rose-breasted grosbeak or, or abstract expressionism, uh, these are communities of individuals that have interactions, aesthetic interactions. And, and you're saying that that isn't an analogy, but it's the same thing, that the, the grosbeak's success or failure with a given song or whatever, and then they change and get one that works better, is the same thing that artists do when they respond to what critics and gallery goers are buying or, or well, reviewing well. I, I wouldn't want to equate them precisely, uh, except to say that what makes them beautiful or what makes them aesthetic is the same thing. That is, what we have is a process of, of co-evolution. To my way of looking at it, uh, the expression, the form of expression and the form of evaluation, the art form and the opinions of it co-evolve with one another. They influence one another over time. So we can imagine that Mozart's symphonies transform the audience's ability to imagine what what music could be, and that those new evaluative uh, opinions fed back upon music, influencing greatly the history of Western music. Uh, the same is true of the peacock's tail. The peacock's tail is a consequence of a collaborative co-evolution between the tail and female evaluations of those tails, uh, and they transform one another over time. So it's that co-evolutionary process which is in common, whether it's dominated by genetics or dominated by cultural uh, interactions. And that actually by, by entertaining other kinds of art that isn't human art, we actually enhance the richness of our understanding of what human art is. And you kind of, you do an interesting thing in the paper I read, which is go through the objections. Well, it has to, art has intention. And then you say... Well, you know, it's uh, just because uh, we can't talk to birds doesn't mean that they don't have uh, intention or evidence of intention. In fact, there's some interesting neurobiological evidence showing that the brain state of a bird who's singing to himself, a male bird singing to himself, or singing in the presence of another male, uh, indicates that he is monitoring and listening to his own song. But when he sings to a female who is a potential mate, those self-monitoring parts of the brain are not active, only the production. So birds have a brain state difference between practice and performance, right? And so that indicates that at least they are not a a music box being wound up and playing. They know when they're on stage. And that's correlated with intention. If we had that evidence for a person that we couldn't otherwise communicate with, we would say, this person has the intention. They know the difference between this context and that. 
aesthetic philosophers and philosophers in general, I don't think have really entertained the full richness of biology before and realized that their definitions or, or accounts of what art is fail to eliminate biological phenomena. And so, therefore, they've got to decide, are we going to be a human-defined discipline or are we going to be something broader? So, your definition of art includes things like flowers and bees, but you don't really mean they're consciously making art, do you? Yeah, they don't have to be conscious uh, in order to be art. And I think flowers and bees are a great example. Uh, bees are making aesthetic choices. If, uh, if they weren't, all flowers would look the same. But the flower is communicating to the bee and saying, remember the nectar you had yesterday? They want to be memorably rewarding, right? So flowers are diverse. And that's because bees are making choices. Are bees conscious of that? I don't think so. But they don't have to be. They don't have to know about art in order to make art or be participating in art. All they have to do is be making uh, evaluations and choices. Aesthetics is a consequence of the opportunity for sensory perception some kind of cognitive evaluation and choice. And when you have those three things occurring, you have the opportunity for aesthetic evolution. And that gives rise to whole new dynamics that didn't occur when those three things are absent. Rick Prum, thank you so much. Thank you. Richard Prum directs Yale University's Frank Program in Science and the Humanities. He's a professor of ornithology and a curator at Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History. And if you want to see some of those red-capped mannequins that Richard Prum studies doing their insane dance moves, we've got a video posted at studio360.org. Rise up this morning, smile with the rising sun. That's it for part one of our science and creativity series about whether non-human animals have culture. The production of this series was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Next time on part two... Whales sing for their lives. Do you make cat food out of composer poets? I think that's a a crime. Save the whale song. That's next time on Studio 360 Science and Creativity Series. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 